Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. A hard cop and a soft dame. And a brass knuckle thriller, Michael. The Big Heat. From Fritz Lang. 1953 film noir. It's the topic of today's discussion. How you feel about it? I feel quite positive on it. The nice. first time I watched it, um, I was more confused, a little bit more deep into Fritz Long's, uh, you know, oeuvre now. So it makes a little bit more sense. I have a little bit more respect for some of the breadth uh, or um, the absence of, of depth even to um, some mm. of these. But that breadth almost informing more readings. Yeah, our second Fritz Lang title in just a matter of Months. weeks. Yeah, I can't remember now how long ago we did our 1921 episode where we talked about Destiny. It was either early March or late February, somewhere in yeah. there. Yeah, very different Fritz Lang film. Uh, yeah, lots to talk about, but we'll do a first impression of our next rescreening title, which is... what Marty Sorsese's Cape Fear. I was his lawyer. Oh, it's a somehow, right? What was he in prison for? No, really. What, what did you do? Have you been following me? It's a small town. Everywhere you turn, I guess we're going to run into each other. <laughs> Dad, you should have just punched him out. Yeah, you know how to fight, Barry. You do that for a living. This guy, uh, he threatened you? He's clever. So that the law can't touch him. You have a daughter around 16? 16? What? I'll come out wherever you are. What you the hell are? All right, that was the trailer for Martin Scorsese's 1991 Cape Fear. Immediate thoughts or reactions? I mean, fun fact, this is, I think, the first rescreening title released the year we were born. So that's kind of a fun little throwback. For sure. Um, I thought this movie was slightly different than what we just witnessed. The trailer Uh is very dated. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I'm almost more excited now to see what exactly Source says he's up to. Gregory Peck has a, um, a small supporting role in this, from what I understand. Um, De Niro's in there, Nick Nolte, who I never got to know is like a main action star or a main like leading man. Um, there's, there's just a lot to the history of cinema that this film is going to learn me. And there looks like t- there's, uh, there's at least a few great cinematic moments of like turbulent violence and intimidation. So I'm, I'm a little bit uh, excited. My interest is peaked. This is a nice, uh, nice almost summer movie. Yeah. You got Robert Mitchum as well. Uh, our sociopath from night of the hunter, mm-hmm. um, not playing the sociopath this time around, kind of a nice mix of like new school actors well, and old school actors. Know? Who knows? You're right. Maybe <laughs> there's the twist. Um, this is one I have seen before. I saw it when I was young, and I remember the climax, actually, pretty vividly. And I remember mm. not much else about the movie, but I remember the climax kind of scaring me as a kid. Um, this is one I think my dad told me to watch just when I was probably just looking for something to watch. Um, I feel like it's kind of an under-discussed 
Scorsese movie. It's not even one that like I kind of like most associate with him. It doesn't even really kind of like look obviously like a Scorsese movie to me, except for Robert De Niro being in here. Um, but that will maybe be fun to talk about is what is Scorsese-ish about this. It's maybe yeah, because this is like about. in between Casino and Goodfellas. And, right. Yeah, this, the is, more, this is definitely uh, not the Marty we talk about, fair. which is why I was drawn to it. Um, I, I remember I watched this as a child, too. And I don't remember why I was scared, but I remember being scared. And mm-hmm. I had it in my head that it was a very different movie that I was scared of. Yeah. Um. So this is this is going to be a, a fun revisit. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Any other Scorsese titles you um have not yet gotten to that you would watch ahead of time or uh, yes, just are yet to see? Definitely. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of Scorsese homework here. I'm also going to revisit The Departed this month. Mm. So it's about time for me to have fun with that ride. I I particularly really really like that that basic film. You know. Yeah. We. Yeah kind of i think look down our noses at that as a Scorsese entry amongst uh cinephiles but i i really really enjoy it um but there's Departed? a yeah yeah oh i feel like that that has its supporters it i would have said gangs of new york is but it's like it's kind of the fight club you know like it's mm-hmm. a lot of film bro disregardation that's true of that's true departed fans um but there's a lot of 70s and 80s um films from him that i haven't seen i think there's one that he did with christian bale in the 80s that I want to mm. see. Um, yeah, there's there's tons. Do you have any? I do. I don't know how much like overlap I would I even have like between this movie and some of the ones I haven't seen. Like Last Temptation of Christ. I mm. want to see that. I don't know how much uh, I'll have. That I don't know that there will be too many connections there. Um, never seen Raging Bull. Good excuse I also to see that. Seen Raging Bull. Yeah. Just for the De Niro connection, I'd probably do that. Um, New York, New York, which I think is the. Mm-hmm. musical with also with De Niro that might be kind of fun uh yeah definitely still ones that I still have to get to yeah all right back to the big heat why don't we stop the cross-examination I didn't come up here to talk out of school why did you come up why don't we call it research or something all right Film noir from Fritz Lang. Again, this is from 1953. Mm-hmm. From a script by Sidney Bohm. It's originally based on a story by William P. McGivern. I think it was originally published as a serial in a newspaper and then was turned into a novel. Um, you said you were maybe underwhelmed on first viewing? Is that what I was yeah. gathering? Yeah, um... I think that I was, um, I was coming off of Destiny, mm. expecting uh, a big hitter. Um, I just watched M mm. right before I, I put this one in, and it's just it's so fundamentally different a mm-hmm. film than his silent films. Um, yeah, and it's so much less expressionistic in the um, lighting and shadow and, and reflection department. The screenplay is very, very broad um, in the sense that, like, if I told you the beats of this story, you would understand and have a visual idea of it because of so many other stories that are very similar or Mm -hmm. have different similar moments. But that's kind of the genius of it and the way that he plays it. Um, There's some motifs that he has in which um, the female characters always... um, 
disappear before the resolution. Mm. Like, the resolution is entirely dependent on them, but they also disappear. Um, and, like, every single one of his films. It's a very, he's a very interesting filmmaker. Um, and I liked it a lot more this go around. Um, but yeah. I'd also adjusted into some newer Lang with some more, um, mm. more of him in his talkies, uh, English talkies, rather than um, foreign language or meaning German or yeah. silent downright no language you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it is funny to think of it like on one hand as a fritz lang film which makes it seem so striking to just compare the american movies to the german ones and the idea that this is like a 90 minute crime thriller versus the kind of epic expressionism of the german films it's like how did one man make these two different kinds of movies that can that can feel so different obviously the you you see the the traces of of expressionism in the noirs mm-hmm. but um the scale feels so different you know something like destiny feels like a giant canvas and painterly and this is so much more tight and scaled down and metropolis is equally huge yeah and yeah. is um it's a different type of enormity mm-hmm. it's this this you know timeless tale of a serial killer of of little girls and you know it's just there's so much more big but um the the tale here is is just as big but the filmmaking is a lot smaller it's a lot tighter Mm -hmm. it's more controlled um and as much as i say that it's less expressionistic there's there's iconic scenes here there's Mm -hmm. there's a moment with with a man um looming over our our main character uh or our main female character played by gloria graham and um she's you know it's not watching them that's important it's watching their shadows and you mm-hmm. know her shirking in fright as he's looming over her mm-hmm. um and there's some great um mirror work in the um the widow's home yeah yeah um it just to kind of run with the the light and shadow stuff like i think that is is all there and it's a very good looking movie um it feels like a like a relatively restrained film noir in that sense, where other you know noirs can have really striking compositions with some kind of elaborate shadow work. There are plenty of images that I that I love here, but it all feels a little more just kind of scaled back. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, it's I more often find myself loving noirs for style, and I do like the style here. But even more, I like some of the performances. I think that's what really makes it work for me, and some the of the hysterics. side characters. Yeah, I think there's some great acting. Um, talk a little bit about the story. Lay that out. Um, yes. A man may or may not have killed himself. His wife places a call saying that she's this man's widow. And um, the plot mechanics ensue. We get a detective on the case. It's an open and shut case of uh, a suicide. And then there's a lead, um, and he disregards the lead because it's an open and shut suicide. She's found in the street murdered after being tortured, and that really kind of sets the ball rolling for um, a lot of brutality towards um, everybody. But uh, um, the most deference in screen time and storyline is given to the the brutalities towards women, even though men are equally disappeared without so much as a sentence, more than the fact that they're disposed of. 
For sure. Yeah. So just Larry that, is gone. Just your description alone hits on just the violence of the movie. We open with a suicide that our then lead man, Dave Banyan, played by Glenn Ford, is tasked with investigating. Um, mentioned the first woman who we see get killed off is um, the character's name is Lucy Chapman. She's yep. played by Dorothy Green. Um this does feel like far and away one of the more sadistic film noirs that I've seen from 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, I think, uh, God, who who are we just talking about? The um, Night of the Hunter. I think that's a particularly sadistic one. 100%. Just a couple years away, I think, too, right? I think that was like 55. Um, Rafifi came to mind, too. There's also some, mm-hmm. I think, much uh, uh, fewer incidents, but there are, there is some violence towards women that yep. stands out on that one as well. Uh, but I think this movie does feel very conscious of um, all of the violence directed towards towards women. And I think the gender dynamics are very much one of the more interesting aspects of this movie. Um, and of, of Lang's storytelling, because Metropolis, uh, M, um, Woman in the Window, uh, Destiny, all, all of these are... Uh, have at least moments of brutality or suffering or sacrifice of women, right? Metropolis is strapping the woman to the, to the mm. furnace or the, whatever it is that they light on fire, Joan of Arc style. Um, woman in the window. I don't want to give away for anyone, but literally everything is about the woman in the window. Um, mm. And once she's gone, everything changes. Um, we'll say, um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a motif with Lang. It's not just this screenplay or just this version. It's he's really getting something I think deeper in like the history of storytelling there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess what was striking for me was this idea that it is you know it's all the women in this movie with some kind of disreputable social standing mm-hmm. um, who are regarded as just completely disposable, and that's. It's almost, it's by almost everyone. Um, I was like t- kind of taking notes on the second viewing of how many times we hear some kind of like snippet of dialogue that regards these women, whether they're, you know, Lucy Chapman, who's like a, she works at the bar. I'm actually not quite sure what she does at the bar. Yeah, right. Um, wink, wink. She works at the bar. Exactly. She's they call her a, a do you, bar. Do, client, you wanna, but... do you want to drink? They they say and she's like, no, I'm not working tonight. It, it, yeah right. yeah that indicates like as much as you can i think with the mpaa at this point in time yeah um yeah so we we don't see her murdered but it's described in graphic detail of her having been found you know off the side of the road with cigarette burns on her and that's our yeah. hint as to who the, did the it the newspaper says uh beaten and tortured yeah it's, it's vivid and you know there is some violence that's on screen that's some that's off screen i think there's kind of a nice balance between the two um but yeah when banyan our lead detective first goes to the coroner after she has been murdered he says things catch up with with girls like that um then he goes to his uh boss's office because his boss is telling him to stop investigating this mm-hmm. and he says when barflies gets killed when barflies get killed it's for one of a dozen reasons uh and then he goes to the bar the the retreat the bartender there says with regard to girls like 
Lucy, they come and go like flies. Again, the fly thing. They know no one cares about what happens to them. They're floaters, not much more than a suitcase full of nothing between them and the gutter. Mm-hmm. Just brutal, just barbaric talk about um, women in these, you know, what they see as these morally disreputable positions. Um which is all striking in and of itself, but I think it's very interesting in contrast to one particular part of this movie, which is um, our head crime boss. His name is uh, Lagana, I think, in his office, his kind of criminal lair, which is this mansion. He has this portrait of his mother above Mm -hmm. the mantelpiece, and it's sort of... A, a random detail that it hones in on at a couple points and this idea that women um with a certain degree of of power or class or respect um they earn a certain degree of respect and other women do not well do you do you remember what he says about his mother uh i don't remember the specifics do you um, remember if i remember i i mean this is loose um i believe what he says is that um she never came to terms with his success. She mm. spent the whole end of her life, you know, uh, reeling from the amount of success that he had. Mm. And um, uh, particularly that criminal look layer looking thing and like the entry, yeah. just that whole mansion. And I think the portrait, I don't know if it's man or woman, if I remember correctly, is all like almost exactly lifted in that styling um, in Once Upon a Time in America at the mm. end with james woods and his lair and there's the buttons that he pushes in the big heat um there's equally buttons for james woods to push but some of those buttons call people which is what he uses the buttons for and some of them make different cameras and televisions come on mm. um and i i'm <laughs> i'm pretty certain that leone like directly lifted kind of that look and that that austerity almost yeah yeah that stood out to me you know the idea that a certain kind of woman can have a portrait made of her um, while other women are treated as completely disposable. And that ultimately kind of concludes with um, Gloria Gloria Graham's line to um, the officer who killed himself's wife. And she says, you know, under the mink, we're the same. We're we're sisters, you Mm -hmm. know, at the at the end of the day we are we are both women we we have this common humanity i was um, looking forward to talking about easy living oh yeah yeah more <laughs> meat coats or was that a sable coat meat coat it's, it's yeah coats. but but yeah. you know there's um significance i of think them. through us watching that film we now understand the significance of what those coats mean mm. in a film like this right because that was just that was just kind of um common knowledge back then you you didn't say that you know it's kind of like looking at the imprint of um you know contraceptive in a man's wallet you know what that is you don't need to say it i think that the coat was kind of something like that yeah yeah definitely and it's just it makes for a striking image too because it is literally like the the exact same coat that they're wearing in that moment um and yeah uh, this image that does literally kind of level the playing field between them where um her name is uh Duncan, Bertha Duncan, the wife of the officer who committed suicide. She's she's the officer, or she's the wife of a police officer. She has a certain respect about her. Um, she has um, manners, and she's cultured and kind of classy, and that's very different from Gloria Graham's gangsters mall. But in that moment, like 
it's just the two of them. They're just two women, one mm-hmm. one against the other. Um, I like the level of the leveling of the playing field there. It it's a fantastic scene. Um, yeah, you you went to one of the best scenes pretty quickly. I know, um, I know. Uh, but earlier in the film, in the very beginning, um, the first time I watched it, I really, I didn't. Um, so I, I've watched and read enough that I had a feeling that she was in on something when he turned up, but I really appreciated the performance this time around that first time around, um, the way that she was playing it and answering his questions. I was just like, this is a little bit too hammy, but, um, Mm. just kind of getting myself into the milieu of, of that time now watching more Lang or briefly before this, slightly after this, I, I kind of appreciate the way that she played it more. There's only four lines where she really like, um, gives away that there's more going on here than, than you would know. Um, and the way that he plays it is like, he just takes her completely seriously and never questions Mm -hmm. her at all. Um, and that, that ended up working for me a lot more. I also really liked the, the Larry gag more the second time around. It was a lot funner. What was the Larry gag? Remind me. Um, so there's there's a guy named Larry who had something to do with his wife getting murdered. Mm-hmm. He called the shot or whatever. Yeah. And yep. um, he's trying to figure out who this guy is. And he finds out that this guy, Larry, is at the retreat. Um, but he doesn't know his last name. So he tells uh, someone to call while he's at the mm-hmm. retreat and ask for Larry. And the, the bar keeps like, what's their last name? And uh, you don't even know their last name how am i supposed to know and just yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a good scene um yeah I remember that scene opens with like this the cl- a close-up on the clock because we know mm-hmm. Banyan's expecting the phone to ring at nine a, or nine thirty a specific time, time. Yeah. yeah yeah um so it, you had that close-up of the clock and the camera kind of pulls back to show us where we are which is the way a couple scenes start that kind of stood out to me um there's another one where we open on a liquor glass as the bartender is polishing it and mm-hmm. it pulls back and we're in the bar again. And then there's one time we're on the painting, pull back and we're in the um, yeah, great office. Just zoom out. Put us in the scene by kind of pulling back. Yeah. I like those um, uh, little details. Um, but yeah, I was, I was struck by the opening scene even more on the second go round and just how immediately um, Bertha Duncan, the wife of this um, suicidal cop, picks up the phone and starts putting this plan in motion for her to continue receiving payments from the the crime syndicate. Um, like his 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 body is literally still warm, and mm-hmm. there's there's no grief whatsoever. We know later that the relationship wasn't great, but still, it's immediately set into motion her her blackmail scheme. Um, so let me ask you this. How certain are you it was suicide? I feel pretty good that it was suicide. You? Uh, 60-40. Okay, okay. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think the alternative is here? Uh, that he was going to leave her. Oh, I uh-huh. And she wanted to keep her lifestyle, so she killed him, became a widow, and had the leverage to, to get rich, and... Um, do whatever the heck she wanted because she wouldn't be beholden to a, a cheating husband anymore. Also very dark. Right? Particularly dark film, in my opinion, for sure. Um, but it doesn't feel like that, necessarily. You you just, like, have to notice it where you're like, oh, his his wife was just car-bombed after 
another girl was killed right before the other girl was uh, was mutilated and then killed. Yeah, I mean, I, by today's standards, I suppose it is relatively tame. Well, it's I guess. just the way that it's played, right? The content mm-hmm. is brutal, but yeah. the way that you see the content, it's um. Or don't see it. It doesn't really, mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't hit you quite as impactfully. And then it's like on on recollection, on deeper thought about what that, what the implications are. You're like, oh, Jesus. I guess I would say that it actually did kind of hit me. Maybe more so mm. on second viewing. Um, I actually did find that like just so tragic. This Lucy Chapman's death in particular, just because yeah. it's so disregarded. Um and you're right, the movie is not really underlining, you know, the tr- the tragedy of it. It's all kind of about just how people talk about it. Yeah, which is almost um, like the a... genius of it, right? That's why it was better the second time, because you're kind of seeing this thing that he's doing where it's like, look how little uh, mutilation, torture, and murder matter. Yeah. Um, and there's no one really grieving about it. Um you know that the, the suicide happens and there is zero grief on mm-hmm. the widow's the wife's face and she just moves right along she is actually kind of delighted to exploit this and then we don't really see any grief from a banyan our, our lead detective after his wife is uh car bombed because he's just he's more consumed by vengeance so this yeah, idea he that becomes the punisher <laughs> yeah the idea that people are are consumed by feelings other than grief they're motivated by by other things whether it's vengeance or in her case just self-interest there's like there's no space for grief in this movie 100 percent. there's um th- there's a few moments with him um and his his family and his wife where you know they kind of set up the big reversal for him but mm. he he just kind of always has that cold distance that a great noir lead has where you, where you're just like um you, you know you when the film ends you don't feel like you just got disconnected from someone you grew close to the way that you would mm-hmm. in so many other films this is a, a very precarious distance that we have with him and we're not sure how far he's going to go and if we're going to disagree with his choices mm-hmm. um which is i i maybe something that lang does do i um he he played m have you seen M? yeah yeah that's a very interesting film because he gives a lot of leash for the uh the serial killer of little girls to pretend that he's not the serial killer during mm. one of those mock trials um like yeah the the like like the criminal trial at the end well the, the no the um kangaroo court when the townspeople have him herded oh, downstairs, oh yeah. right they yeah, get, yeah they give him like a couple minutes of like denying <laughs> the charges and you're just watching him squirm and it's it's just a it's a um yeah he i think lets angles sit longer of um like brutality and and like crimes longer than other directors would um there's there's also two references that i found really interesting one of which is when um his daughter is being watched by his uh brother-in-law and all his brother-in-law's uh like friends some of them are army and stuff yeah and uh there's they're playing poker and drinking and one of the one of the guys is like um you know i think he asks 
do you know where they're coming from? Because he wants to go Oh, get yeah, them. yeah. And and he kind of just spouts into this war story where he's like, whoever's coming, they, they didn't have the stones to do what I did. I mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't have done it even in a tank. And I, you know. Totally. And, and then we hear the breakdown about how he was in World War II and how he won the Medal of Honor. And it's just like this fun aside that really puts us in the time and the place. And the other one is when he shows up, um, I think in in the uh, kind of the the crime boss's lair, and mm. he starts talking about how these look like prohibition killings. Oh, and right, I thought right. That was such an interesting detail that really placed us in the time because that meant something then, and that doesn't mean anything now unless you're mm. like studied on it, mm-hmm. right? Because the prohibition killings, that's like that kind of means like mafia, but it also means um you know like illegal liquor sales and like competing businesses maybe or you Mm -hmm. know taking out a cop that was going to rat on you like and and just how brutal those killings probably were to send a message um Mm -hmm. i I just thought those details were really interesting and enriched the world really quickly yeah the 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 scene with the war buddies in particular was like one of the only scenes where i felt kind of safe i was like let's Mm -hmm. just stay with these dudes for a while because they're the only ones who seem to have this place kind of locked down i don't think so either like just hang out banyan take a load off these guys seem just fine uh it's like a little bit moment kind of like a breather um amidst a lot of other just terribleness mm-hmm. um they, they feel they feel safe I, I feel protected by them for sure um yeah totally with you there um what else yeah you know this is kind of a common noir i think but just the idea of how many people in this are motivated by by self-interest um you Who was uh, it? that's maybe the easier question to ask but unfortunately my examples are the reverse where you know i think of uh Banyan first showing up at the mansion, Lagana, the crime boss's mansion, and he's talking to the cop who's kind of like patrolling the the grounds. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, how do you like working here or something like that to the cop? And he says, I'm just doing my job. You know, I'm just doing my thing. I'm just playing my part in this. And they talk about the taxpayers, $100 a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, He goes to the auto yard at one point because he's trying to follow a tip about who Mm -hmm. might have car bombed his wife i gotta find a different way to phrase that that's what happens <laughs> lit- that is what, what happens you, the person who made the car self-immolate his wife <laughs> yeah yeah um but the guy that, at the truck yard doesn't want to tell him anything and he says hey i got wife and kids like you know i'm, I'm not gonna talk again he's just looking out for his own skin mm-hmm. um and then when banyan finally finds the infamous larry um you know, Larry again says, "Hey, I was just doing my job." Larry Gordon. I was Larry Gordon says, "I'm just, I'm just, I was just doing my job." Um, and then what do we get? Four sentences. Uh, Larry tried to make a quick run to the airport. He's dead now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Larry does not meet a happy fate. Another. He uh, ran so quick. He must have really squealed. <laughs> yeah. While, while the off-screen violence of Larry Chapman act. Of Lucy Chapman actually does affect me. The Larry Gordon off-screen death, not so much. Yeah, he just dies, and that's fine. <laughs> You're like, I don't even know if I trust you. It's not in the newspaper. <laughs> that was very fast. Um, and then at the at the very end, I still don't know what to make of the final few moments as Banyan is, you know, sitting over Gloria Graham and she's dying, and he's talking about his wife, and I realize mm-hmm. like she's kind of 
that's kind of something she asked for was for him to, you know, be honest about how he loved his wife or something like that. Um, but it's still kind of weird to me that as she's dying, he's talking about his wife, his relationship. There's something about how at the end of the day, everyone's most concerned with themselves and their relationships. He's not even really consoling her as she dies. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know. I think I've got a different read on that. Um, so she, she, I think is seeking, um, intimacy, not physical sexuality or interest in yeah, her, but yeah. actual intimacy. And he's been totally cold this whole time. This is the first time he's talking to her about what he actually loves. Yeah. And he's talking about his wife and she's listening and alive still. And I believe that when she dies is when he pivots and starts talking about his daughter. And so mm. w- when she dies, it's it's kind of that he was sharing his personal intimacies about what he actually loves and cares about. And it's also, you know, making the deeper storytelling point that, you know, her actions have changed him from being the archetypal Punisher character, mm-hmm. anti-hero, to being someone who can love and feel uh, again. I, I can totally get behind that, especially because her hearing him express true love for his wife means that she didn't sacrifice herself for nothing. It was yeah. for um, his Something real, redemption. which is not maybe what she sees her life as. Yeah, yeah. Um, how'd you like the scenes with Banyan and his wife at their house? I feel like those have a considerably different tone. Oh, I love movie. those scenes. Me I too. wish that was a separate movie. And totally. I could just watch her cook medium rare steaks that that make him go Potatoes. to the, go to the office and um tell him that he's married to an heiress. Heiress mm-hmm. <laughs> comes up a few times too. Right because uh Gloria asked him what do you think I was bef- bef- or what do you think I was an heiress before I met him or something mm. and, and he makes the comment I I never thought about you and she she takes that a little bit harsh. Yeah, um, yeah. But then his his wife makes the point about the heiress. I think that, um, yeah, people were a little bit obsessed with inheriting things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, at, at, on first viewing, whenever we go back to Binion's home with the wife and daughter and the music really shifts, it's just like cozy mm-hmm. melodrama for these cozy domestic melodrama for these moments. It, I, I thought I was like, is this almost ironic or something at first? I don't know that it actually is, but it is a very stark contrast in tone mm-hmm. um, from the 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 menace of, of scenes otherwise. But I like those scenes, too. They're nice. Yeah, and they, I think they kind of inform, like, the the guy at the, the junkyard where it's like, you know, that feeling of those scenes is the reason why he's not talking. You know, it yeah, kind of yeah, makes yeah. him a little bit more sympathetic. Um, one of the side characters who I, I really like, but I'm kind of confused storyline wise i feel like we're missing a few scenes here minimum um is that that older woman who works for him mm-hmm. and you know she she kind of shambles out and, and gives him the breakdown on on uh larry you know she knows it's larry about your height and you know that's the tip but then um she helps him get larry um and shake him down mm-hmm. and there's never any breakdown on how we go from figuring out who larry is to this old woman teaming up with him again and helping him <laughs> knock on Psychic. the door and figure out that, that he's in there. 
Um, it's it's a very interesting um, like sub storyline that I I would love a little bit more juice on. Yeah, I mean, I, which I think speaks to like a a broader point about the the parts that the movie kind of skips over. Um, you're you're right. He he meets the her at the truck yard, and then she's just showing up, helping him carry mm-hmm. out a plot. Um, we don't see the the planning there, or how exactly he talked to the old woman into doing that, or um, how he got in touch with her again. Yeah, yeah. You know, did he call the junkyard and ask if he could speak to, to the woman? Yeah. Hi, this is Officer Banyan or uh, Sergeant Banyan. I need to speak to your employee. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Um, we go right from the car bombing into Banyan meeting with his boss. There's no, they talk about the funeral, but there's no grieving. There's no kind of fallout Mm -hmm. um, emotionally or personally for him. Kind of. That's the other thing. I kind of like it because this is a noir that almost like doesn't let melodrama exist. Even though melodrama's everywhere. I agree. To me that his having no time for grief is just kind of like the very first the wife at the very beginning like people just aren't doing that in this movie they have other things that they're kind of motivated by which i think is kind of interesting i i'd be interested to know like if they shot those scenes and then they were edited out like i because he he does have melodrama in many of his other films um yeah I'd, i'd be interested just to know a little bit more about the exact physical making of this We've danced around uh, a, a very eloquent incident that we've termed the car bombing. Yeah. Um, this is... The car bombing is a fantastic scene. It's incredibly... Oh, yeah. Like, the, the car is a real physical car. The window's physically cracked and broken. The windshield's physically cracked and broken. This is real smoke. This is real fire. Yeah. He has to really throw his shoulder in, really use some elbow grease to, to jack that, that car door off of... The uh, of being closed and, and jammed and, and haul her out. Yeah. And when you're watching the scene, you're not convinced that she's dead. Mm, yeah. And yeah. They, there's just, I think that scene just pays dividends. That is not just one. Of, that's not just my favorite scene, probably in the movie. That's like one of my favorite scenes that we've done in rescreening. Like that is just, mm. it's an incredibly memorable scene. Like I will not forget that. Yeah. The camera like shakes a little mm-hmm. bit, right. As it explodes. I, I, I was surprised when they're eating in the, in the room. Right. Cause she goes outside to get something and just the explosion, right. Th- that's by far the loudest thing by a mile that we'll hear in the entire film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I can only imagine, like, watching that in 1953 in a theater. Like, that would make you jump, for mm-hmm. sure. That would come as a shock, I think. <laughs> pretty pretty gruesome. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, just uh, back on the point about the things that, that it skips over, and then I'll drop that thread. But there is the scene where Banyan talks to Lucy Chapman, at the beginning, and she's describing that she doesn't think this was a suicide. Mm-hmm. And he's very adamant with her that... It is. It was a suicide. He seems totally convinced that this is a closed and shut case at that point. Mm-hmm. And then the very next scene is him going back to the officer's wife and, and asking her more questions about mm-hmm. that. Um, which is just an interesting like cut, because clearly between those two scenes, he changed his mind a little bit. He thought at least he needed to go back and ask her. Mm. Um you know, these these little moments of characterization that we don't see or changes in, like, just character thought is kind of interesting. Um, 
either that or the the doubt was already kind of in his head and we didn't see it. But I don't know. That stood out to me. I had a I had a slightly different read. I don't think you're wrong, but the way that I rationalized it to myself was that he's he's such a an upstanding cop that when mm. he's presented with new evidence and a new lead, he has to complete his follow up. I like that. I like that. And and then in the act of doing that everything unravels just by acting as you're supposed to act in the book you get a new lead you go follow Mm -hmm. up you go ask the question and then all of a sudden this rat's nest comes out totally gosh i wish i could remember exactly the context now but there's some line banyan's wife says to him about doing things how he always does things by the book or something Mm -hmm. like that so I, I could totally and see just, that. Like, he's, he's a, just, he just a, thinks he has to. Yeah, as a man in the film, like that's just that's how he's playing it. Um, I'm sure that you're right. It's an incredibly quick cut. There's zero breathing room. I'm sure there was more intended there, and that there's there's dailies, even if they didn't print them for something else. But um, I think that the way that it ends ends up, it, it still feels true to the the impression I have. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah, and I appreciate it just because it. I mean, it makes the film just go. Like, I think there is a really nice pace to this movie. I don't feel like it never goes slack. Did you ever get confused about the retreat? Uh, what about it? Right, like there's like um, he he's at the retreat, right? And then we're in a bar, and I I don't think that we're told that the bar is called the retreat until someone like says it within the bar Mm. itself. You're like, where are we? Yeah, because before that, we're talking about the retreat, and I'm thinking like, okay, so this is like a a Camp David, like evil criminal situation. (laughs) Camp David, that's hilarious. (laughs) You know, you got your 50 square miles of of the retreat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It turns out it's just it's just a pretty small bar. Yeah, yeah. I I was waiting for for Joan Crawford to come out with slinging her her six shooter and a guitar. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, back to, to side characters in the retreat. I, I love that bartender. Um, oh, great. He was great. Um, and you know, the, the little sh- kind of shift he has when Banyan first comes in and he's saying he doesn't really know anything about Lucy Chapman. He doesn't ask questions about his girls. He just, it all amounts to kind of a shrug. Mm-hmm. And then just between that and the walk to the phone booth where he makes the call, you have a total different sense of the character. He totally seems just plain slimy and and in cahoots with the the criminals. It's a great little transition, right? And then he pops outside the phone booth, and mm-hmm. everything just switched on its head. Totally, totally. He has a grin that suddenly looks way more evil than before. Yeah, and um, so after the confrontation where he threatens to take him in doesn't take him in um and the bar the barkeep kind of indicates just how much he knows by saying we already had you warned once today mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and then he turns around and he walks away and the menacing look after him is unlike every other character in mm-hmm. this entire f- it's so yeah it's it's rich there's a depth to to lang film films not just this one but all of them and the depth I, I think is most interesting here because this is like one of his most stripped down run times. Mm-hmm. So there's all this depth that he must have developed. It, there's got to be a lot more prints that, that will just never see the light of day or burned or used up now um, mm. where, where he establishes this stuff. But um, because he goes to such depth, um, even when you strip it down and you just have this 90 minute runtime, 
all the depth is there, but it's it's more expedient. There's more speed to it. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, again, in the context of everything he had done, the idea of going from the three-hour-plus epics to mm-hmm. something 90 minutes where it just feels like he's just taking out scenes that he doesn't think he needs. Like, what a drastic sort of, um, yeah, concision of, of filmmaking between this and the older stuff. Yeah, um... Uh, I, I know that we just did him, but Altman, mm. you talk about Altman, you think of PTA. Um, this is one of those guys that just strikes me as, um, I mean, he's a self-described workman. I do think he, that he's a master, but he, he shirked being called a master filmmaker and said that he was just a worker. He was just a workman director and he was paid to a job and he did the paid for a job and he did the job. He, he, in some ways just reminds me of Altman. He reminds me of PTA where it's just like, there's no, um, I mean, I've talked about some of the motifs where it's kind of the, these women really, um, are the center of his films. And normally it's at their expense that, that kind of everyone is saved, um, or everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, ends up where, um, maybe the most desired place they could be still is. And Mm -hmm. he, I just, I, number one, I think of that because PTA, I think we can agree is a master. Altman, mm. I think, I don't know if we can agree, but I think he's a master. But both of them have this very nonchalant take to their own filmmaking. Mm. Both of them see themselves as these workmen. They're they're men who do jobs. And mm. Lang saw himself the same way. But I think he was a master. Um, in you know, they're different, but they just remind me of the same type of a thing. They're not really... They're not men that are up their own ass, which are some of my favorite directors. You know, mm. yeah. um, they're they're a different type of of, of director, and um, there there's just something kind of almost um, indefinable about how their films are um, are similar, even though they're they're totally different stylings. Like it, it's just the quality, the quality of the the when they chose to print the scene, um, how they're very balanced in all the different parts of filmmaking the picture is not more important than the sound isn't more important than the lighting isn't more important than something else they just put it all together and the stories are just so consistently um different and you you know they're they're going all over the place pta is a little bit slower Mm. but altman and and lang they're just they just kept going and going and going yeah it's kind of funny like the they're american directors that Mm -hmm. um they were making comparisons between um, you know, just the idea that this movie feels so American and he's German, you know, mm-hmm. just the extent to which I, I think this is probably true of any, um, of the European, um, immigrant directors, um, like Billy, Billy Wilder, Douglas Sirks. Maybe this isn't really a unique thing, but just, the, just the idea that it in no way feels German when the other movies feel so German and the extent mm-hmm. to which they just seem to have... I mean, the woman on the in the window, which is an American mm. film, feels German because oh, of, it? Okay, because of its nature. Um, well, it's the screenplay nature, and um, it's just like my history with with Musel or or Thomas Mann, or I, not necessarily German, but like Austrian, Austro-Hungarian. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's full of references to that type of stuff. Mm. Um, it you know letter to an unknown woman is what it's really an homage to in a lot of ways mm. um so it's just it's it's ripe there but it's also it's totally american and that like you'd go watch that expecting a noir and you would have a great time yeah um 
and yeah, maybe like that's something I'd just be curious to see if you can sense, like if you looked at the stuff those directors like him made when they first came to America. Mm-hmm. Um, versus the stuff they made later, because like in the scenes where with Banyan with his wife at the household, like that just seems like totally accurate fifties right that American is, household that is stuff. So post war, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, he he totally seems to know the culture he's working in, despite the fact that he is not um from here. He'd be, I guess he'd been here a while by now, but um, yeah, that is interesting that the woman in the window feels a bit more um German. And its influences, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if you watch it, I think you'll agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, other thoughts? Um, not particularly, but I do think we have to address the um, the Two-Face before Two-Face was invented. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's an interesting build-up. It's an interesting scene. Um, the retreat event happens... She follows Banyan out of the bar. She weasels her way in to going with him to his hotel. They talk. She leaves and she she lies to, um, gosh, whatever that guy's name is. I'm forgetting. Secondary villain. Uh, the guy who throws who throws the coffee. Yeah, yeah. Vince. 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 Yeah, the yeah, guy who's known for that's torturing his first name and beating women. Yeah. Um, and he he, you know, interrogates her and knows that she's lying. And she just keeps doubling down and then he scalds half of her face. And the timing of when, of how much time we see her bandaged or on marred from the boil yet. And then right when she takes it off. Yeah. Um, I don't, that's, it's a lingering moment. I, I think it's an incredible use of striking imagery and, and pacing and storytelling. Um, that that's one of the particular choices in the direction and the story that I think they just hit on all levels and, and really, um, defined one of the key moments of the film, just like the car bomb. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, there are probably examples out there that I just don't know of, but like the thought of disfiguring your kind of lead actress of the movie Mm -hmm. partway through seems pretty bold for the fifties, um, when you would maybe ordinarily keep her safe and beautiful and glamorous for the whole time. And instead she gets the most gruesome, like attack of anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it is satisfying. I think when she, um, has tears it off when, when she tears it off. Yeah. She has that line to Banyan about like, well, maybe I'll just go through life sideways. Uh-huh. That's such a great, line. such a great line. Um, there's, that's like a, both a sad line and kind of a great line, like the resilience that she's just going to keep moving on. And anyways. the weightiness, like her smarts, it's it's so charming. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's the most kind of like accepting of the the how corrupt all this is. You know, mm-hmm. she has that line about money. Money, yeah. I've been rich and I've been poor, and believe me, rich is better. Uh-huh. It's like word. <laughs> Maybe I, I'm <laughs> with you. It's a great line. Yeah. Um, she she's not she's not down about it. she just kind of accepts things as as they are and kind of goes with the punches, which is a brutal way to put it. But there is something that's not just sad about what happens to her. The fact that she's willing to like go out and get vengeance is kind of awesome. Yes. Um. So I think my last big point here is that none of them. I don't think this is true of any of the men besides maybe the barkeep. 
but Gloria Graham herself, the either the way that she performs as a performer or the way that Lang directed her, um, the, the her physical body stylings are so mm. silent film era. Like mm. her actions with her body when she's upset are hysterics. Like you look, you're looking at an actor physically playing hysterical. Mm. It's um, it's really interesting because it's a talkie, but this this female performance is very um, you know, silent film where she's mm. kind of indicating everything with her behavior. There's this great demure scene where where she's in his hotel and she she uninvited climbs up on the bed takes the pillow mm. out from under the cover puts it up and then she she sits um sideways and just looks very proper mm-hmm. um and it's just her her physicality is just kind of indicating so much depth to this character i don't think i've ever seen a talkie at this era where the actress who is talking is indicating so um beautifully with her body in that silent film era type totally the body language very much stands out i don't yeah it's a a good thing to have called out that i think about maybe the very first shot of her where she's laying on the couch i think it's one that's actually on the cover of the blu-ray um yeah the idea that she is like so at ease in this world of all these guys we're looking at the cover right now it looks fantastic highly recommended blu-ray um yeah, lots of great uh, shots of her in particular. Um, there's that one of her all bandaged up when Banyan comes back to her in the hotel room and her head's just like uh, down. She's sitting in the corner of the room mm-hmm. and the lights, you know, you got your classic Venetian blinds there. That's a great shot, too. Good looking stuff. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite scene? <sighs> There are small moments that I that I really like. I like when Banyan first gets a phone call. It's his wife actually answers the phone um, from, you know, at the time he just knows that it's someone on Lagana's payroll. And it's a guy, it's who we learn is Larry, trying to scare him off from investigating all this. And it's just the shot of him, Larry, from behind in the phone booth. Um, just a great kind of... Uh, menace to that shot i like Mm -hmm. that one a lot um and i'll just combine that with one when banyan's just left um bertha duncan's house and the camera kind of pushes up to the window as she watches banyan leave great scene um great cinematography yeah and again like you know she's the one who immediately put kind of puts on that mask whenever banyan shows up mm-hmm. to be all ladylike and you see it drop there and you see a little bit of nervousness in her, in her eyes there also a great shot so how about you i'm i'm also gonna double dip um my favorite is uh or like the most pleasant of my favorites is the the scene where they're talking about the t-bone steaks and mm. um and they start talking about the beer and she's like i'll have a sip of yours and then he goes mm. into this this line about, um, you know, how about how about I drink mine and I take a sip off yours for once? Mm. And there's there's just this um, this wry coity to it, and it's it's so passively informing me, the viewer, of their relationship and what type of person he is, what type of person she is, um, and you know, just the the kind of day to day joy in the family. And it's it's a really memorable, really quick way of 
of communicating that to me that I really just, you know, in a, in a movie that opens with a suicide and we hear about women getting mutilated, tortured and murdered. Um, that was a, a nice, um, aside. And then following that, um, I think that the most, um, impressive scene is the car bomb scene in which, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just an incredible set piece, real fire, real smoke, a very physical performance, wrenching the door off, carrying her out, her physical real body out. Um, and you know, that kind of shake to the camera, like you said, the cracks in the windows, there's just, yeah, there's, I can't think of a scene really like that from this period of time. Good stuff. Good stuff. That's a wrap. On to Cape Fear. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.